invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the New Testament to the uh, letter of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. I began a series of sermons from uh, this a few weeks ago. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Remind you, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, Timothy, who was probably about 30 years old at this time. Uh, Timothy is pastoring in the ancient cosmopolitan urban city of uh, Ephesus. The book of Acts tells us how the church at Ephesus began. It was one of the most remarkable stories in the book of Acts where there in Ephesus is a large, uh, one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And it was not only a boon to the economy, uh, but there was a vested interest there, more so from an economic standpoint than a spiritual standpoint. And Paul and others went there and preached the gospel, and as people were converted, and as the gospel spread, and people became followers of Christ, the commercial end of the temple worship, uh, the worship at the temple of Diana, began to fade. And so these silversmiths who profited from making these little replicas of the goddess Diana uh, were hit in the billfold and they were very unhappy and so a riot basically takes place in Ephesus and it's one of the uh, amazing scenes of the start of an early church in the New Testament times. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, the longest place he spent ministering and equipping the leaders there. We have a very emotional scene in the book of Acts where Paul says goodbye to the leaders, the shepherds, the elders at the church of Ephesus. He knows he'll never see them again. And he gives them a warning at that time that vicious wolves, i.e. false teachers, will arise from their own midst and will seek to lead astray members of the flock. Now it's five years later. Five years have passed since Paul said those words, his parting words to the leaders at Ephesus. And now he sent Timothy there to pastor, and sure enough, that is exactly what has happened. And so if you've been here since I began this series on Timothy, you saw that we, he begins by dealing with false teaching right off the bat in the opening of the letter. And Timothy, as a pastor, along with the elders, we're going to have to set some things straight. Basically, the letter of 1 Timothy to call it, which today's vernacular is how to do church. And so in the weeks ahead, Lord willing, we'll look at how we should pray, how we should worship, how we should appoint leaders, what's the role of leaders. But today, let's look at the end of, of chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Hear God's word. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need spiritual nourishment. And you tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we pray now that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. May we meet with you during these moments. May you cause faith to be born where there is not any now. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. The September issue of Christianity Today magazine had as its theme the anniversary of 9-11. And there were numerous articles in that issue, and there was an interesting two-page section, really four pages that I saw, where there were just brief interviews with a number of Christian leaders in the world, not only in the United States, but in the world. Uh, some pastors, some teachers, uh, some women leaders, some heads of organizations like uh, World Vision and Compassion International. And in one of the interviews, they, they were asking them, how did 9-11 affect you 10 years ago? And they were very interesting, the comments. Um, Muslim outreach, probably giving to Muslim missions, has quadrupled since then. Giving to organizations like World Vision has quadrupled over the past 10 years. And the awareness that we in America have often of other needs in the world that maybe we were insulated from before. But one person, I can't remember who, said that on that day, they realized in America a new awareness that we have enemies and that we are at war. Well, that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about warfare, spiritual warfare, not so much against other people, but against the principalities against the powers, against the world and the flesh and the devil and false teaching. And so he talks to him here about fighting the good fight in this spiritual warfare. So let's look for just a few moments at how not only Timothy was to fight the good fight, but also how you and I are to fight it as well. He tells him in verse 18, I'll reread it, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by holding, following them, you may fight the good fight. Do you ever second-guess a major decision? Have you ever spent a lot of time, maybe not only days, but weeks or months, praying about, thinking through whether you should relocate, whether you should follow that job path, whether you should go to that school, um, some large purchase, whether you should enter into a contractual agreement with someone, whether you should buy into that business, and you pray about it, and you seek counsel, and you, you study God's word about it, and maybe this goes on for months, maybe in some cases for a couple of years. And you seek godly wisdom from others, as Proverbs says, from a multitude of counselors. You do everything you know to do. You follow this rather rigid process, and you make the decision. The decision's made. The action's taken. Everything's going well. And then suddenly the calm water becomes white water, and you're in the rapids and perhaps the first thing you do is, what was I thinking when I made this decision? I made the wrong decision. And you go back, and all those weeks or months or even years are just like they're untied and dismissed. That's tempting to do that. And when we do that, as a pastor, I advise people, and I try to tell this to myself too, you've got to have faith in the process. What was the f process I followed? How did I get here? How... What was the evidence that God led me to this point? Now, when that is certain, then it's far easier than to deal with the difficulty. Well, Timothy had a plate full of difficulties there in this church in Ephesus. And so it might be tempting, especially since we find other scripture that say that Timothy perhaps was inclined toward timidity, it might be tempting for him to second-guess himself, his own gifts and abilities, or even the call for why God had him there. And so what Paul tells him to do is think back. 
Think back to the process. And he mentions to him how he had been set aside, how he had had prophecies made over him. For our purposes, we can just refer back to that event as his ordination, his call and ordination to ministry. We find that referenced in 2 Timothy where Paul says to him, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That was the sign of ordination, an official uh, ceremony, an official act before the church where Timothy was commissioned to ministry in a vocational capacity and a call as a pastor. Now, you've witnessed things like this if you've been around this church or others probably where we have uh, men who are ordained, who have been set aside with the laying on of hands. Uh, Now, this was different, though, with Timothy because he refers to prophets. At various points in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, they appear prophets. They're not on every page of the book of Acts. They're not everywhere. But there are a few occasions where someone with a gift of prophecy has a word from God, and it's there in the book of Acts. They're not very frequent, and not as frequent as you might expect to hear some people talk. For example, when Barnabas and Saul, in Acts chapter 13, if you want to read it later, they are set apart to become the missionaries to the Gentiles. And it is a significant moment in the history of the church. They're setting apart, and it appears to have been the ministry of prophets telling the church, the church which was praying and fasting, these prophets said that God had said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. So God sort of underlines the call of Saul and Barnabas to be missionaries to the Gentiles by giving a word to prophets. There's another prophet, a man named Agabus. He shows up a couple of times in the book of Acts. One of the times is when there was a famine that was going to occur in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the most important city in the Bible. And God's judgment appears to be upon the city of Jerusalem. And Agabus, as a prophet, is given a word from God that a famine will come upon the city. There's one other example that I want to mention about Agabus. The Apostle Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. And again, God uses a prophecy through Agabus to issue a word through him to Paul saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be put in prison. You'll be put in prison. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you remember your ordination. He's saying something like this. You remember that time when the church set you apart, when they recognized your gifts that God had given to you. And there was this official ceremony, and there was this setting you apart, and there were prophets. And you remember what the prophets said? Our problem is we don't know what they said. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's not recorded there. But Timothy knew, and Paul knew, and he's saying, remember that, Timothy. Draw off that. Draw off that experience. Now, seated here in the congregation are a few men, a few young men who are under care of our session. That's church talk. That's in our book of church order, meaning that they are sensing an internal call to vocational ministry of some sort. And they are considering seminary, and some have already gone. So in our denomination, we have a process where a man that's sensing an internal call, and that's affirmed externally by others, they come under care of our session. And it's, it, though it's brief, it's a weighty 
It's a weighty time at our session meetings. There's 24 men on the session, and they give their testimony, this individual would, and we pray for them. And they come under care, and so that's a weighty thing. And some of you men that are under care, that are seated here today, you need to remember that. You need to remember when you're by yourself and you're tempted to do something wrong, remember that coming under care. Remember that as affirmation and that you are responsible to other people. I have to remember that myself through ordination. Each year we ordain and install elders and deacons. We're in that process now with training. I meet with guys this afternoon going through training, and then there'll come a time later in the fall where there'll be an election by the congregation. And then there will be a ceremony. And normally they kneel right here to my left, and hands are laid on them by the other officers, and there's prayer offered, and there's their vows that are taken before God's people. It is a weighty thing to see, but it's weighty to be a part of. You men that are ordained or office, you need to look at that as affirmation and responsibility. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you're in, you're in warfare. You're in warfare, and when you're tempted either to discouragement or to doubt yourself or to doubt your call, think back. Think back to that time when you were set apart. That's what he tells him. You know what our spiritual heritage, often people say, well, didn't John Calvin start the Presbyterian Church? You know, the, the French theologian who was living in Switzerland, in Geneva. No. Calvin primarily started Reformed churches in Europe. Our spiritual ancestor, as far as distinctive Presbyterianism, is a man from Scotland. And what was his name? Knox. John Knox. K-N-O-X. John Knox was not planning to be a pastor. He was not planting, planning to be a church planter or those that would, would lead others in planting churches. His setting apart for ministry is fascinating. Many of you know this, what I'm getting ready to read to you, but in case you don't know, he was a man living in St. Andrews, Scotland. It's the 16th century. The nation was in turmoil. And there's a congregation he's attending. He's not the pastor, uh, but he had read the Greek New Testament. And he had taught enough and spoken enough that people in the congregation were saying, that man is gifted. That man needs to be preaching. He needs to minister. Knox had not arrived at that decision himself, but the congregation and those people had, so they came up with a plan. And the plan was on a particular Sunday when there was another man preaching there, John Ralph. Did I pronounce it right, Kinzer? John Ralph. In the middle of the sermon, here was the, here's what he did according to the plan of the congregation. In the middle of the sermon, imagine now, if we were there in St. Andrews, and I'm John Rao, and, and seated out here, maybe right there, Matt, is John Knox, or maybe he's in the back. John Rao is preaching. I don't know what his subject was, but during the sermon, he breaks the whole train of the sermon, and he looks at John Knox from the pulpit, and he says, Brother, ye shall not be offended that I speak unto you that which I have in charge, even with all those who are here present, which is this. In other words, I'm speaking on behalf of this whole congregation. In the name of God and of his son Jesus Christ and in the name of those that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you not refuse this holy vocation and that you take upon you this public office in charge of preaching 
even as you look to avoid God's displeasure and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. Imagine that in the middle of a sermon, and he's seated there, and the man says that from the pulpit. Basically, I've got a word from God, and if you disobey, God's going to punish you. You're going to be under his displeasure. Well, apparently, according to the story, John Knox was so upset, he gets up, runs from the building in tears, half frightened of what had occurred and half frightened that it might be true and that if he denies to do it, that God's judgment well, may well be upon him. But he obeyed. He obeyed that call to his dying day. Now that is extreme. But Paul is saying, Timothy, when it's hard, think back. Brothers and sisters, if you are to fight the fight in spiritual warfare, you need that certainty by looking back at the process of how God has worked in your life to bring you to where you are now. Well, now he's going to tell him a couple other things to do, how to fight, how to fight the good fight. Look at verse 19. He says, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Holding on to faith and faith and a good conscience. Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got two valuable resources here. Two. The first one is faith. The second is conscience. The first one is objective. It's the truth. It's the content of the scriptures. It's the faith, the essentials of the Christian faith that are non-negotiable. The death and burial and resurrection of Christ. The Trinity, God being sovereign, salvation all of grace, not of works, and so forth. The Bible being true. We have, it's like a handle, this is the way I envision it. It's a handle with, that we hold on to, and one grip is the truth, the faith. I have to hold on to that if I'm to fight the good fight. The other is a good conscience. Now, what's a good conscience? Paul often mentions a good conscience. Sometimes in his defense, when he would be speaking to his adversaries, he said, I stand before you that this God is my witness with a good conscience. And other times he talks about the necessity in the life of a believer to have a good conscience in our obedience to the Lord. He's not talking there uh, about, <clears throat> about whether to obey Christ or not. It seems we live in a day now that to mention obedience or duty is like somehow or another we've all become Pharisees or to say anything like I should obey the Lord or you should obey this or here's a command from God that that's adding something to grace and adding legalism and, you know, trying to say, well, you're trying to say we earn God's favor. No, no, we're clear. Christ paid it all on the cross. We can add nothing to his work. We can do nothing more that God will forgive us more. I can do nothing to make God love me more. And so the obedience, the, the obedience to God's law is a response to that. That's what it is. And there are things that are not black and white in the scriptures, certain areas that are clear that none of us should do, but then there are gray areas that you may feel a liberty to do or say or think, and I may not, or vice versa. And so... We have decisions we have to face based on the fact that as I know God's truth, the essentials of the faith, that my conscience will or will not let me do that. Or it will not let me in the sense that I should or shouldn't. And most of us have a sense of that. Not that the conscience is our guide, God's word is our guide. But if, if you begin to anesthetize your conscience, then you begin to let go right there. And there's something about human nature 
that we often will pick our theology to match our morality, and you can see it everywhere. You see it in other world religions. You see it in the secular world. A person will pick their theology to match their morality. They will choose, that person may choose, this is the way I want to live. I don't mind lying as a way of life. I don't mind deception. And it won't take long before they will begin to say, well, God doesn't mind it either. After all, he wants me happy, doesn't he? He wants me to provide for my family, doesn't he? What's the harm in a white lie? So the morality now is dictating the theology. Or the person that says, I want to live with no sexual restraints, however I want to live. It won't take long before that person will find a religion or even a branch of the Christian church, so to speak, where that will be condoned, or at least it won't be condemned. It just may be silent. So often a person picks their theology to match their morality. Here's the problem, and I think why, or here's the challenge. We're to hold on to faith, the essentials of the faith, the objective truth, and with a good conscience. If I begin to violate my conscience, if I begin to participate in something that I know is wrong, and maybe nobody else knows it but God, then my conscience then, I'm going to let go of that, and it will probably just be a short period of time before I let go of this too. Because I've got now to come up with something to justify what I'm doing. On the other hand, if a person, if a person is say, I'm going to release my hold on the faith, and they had adopt a less than biblical view of the scriptures, then it probably won't be long before they release that too. That immorality or some form of pattern of sin will follow the release of truth. So in fighting the good fight, we have to hold to both. We have to hold to both. And if we don't, if you don't, the problem is spiritual shipwreck. That's what he's saying. So a good conscience is the mother of a sound faith, and it gives the wherewithal to fight the good fight. You can stand up to a lot of substantial pressure if your conscience is clear. But if your conscience is not clear, it is very hard to stand. When, I mean, how can, how can you tell? One of you seated here today told me years ago about your family policy about movies that when your children were much younger, you said, if you see me and your mother watching it, you can watch it. In other words, this dad was saying, I'm not going to say you can't watch something that then I'll watch only when you're not around. That's a good conscience. And therefore, the father can take a stand because the actions, hopefully at least in that case, back it up. So these are two necessities. Hold on to the faith, the objective truth of God's word. Hold on to a good conscience, the subjective treasure of a holy life. Now, there's failure, though. He mentions a couple of guys. In the latter part of verse 19, some have rejected these. Rejected what? Holding on to faith and a good conscience. And so have shipwrecked their faith. Paul knew about shipwrecks. He survived at least one of those. He knew what it was like to be adrift in the ocean for for several days and nights. Probably the most fascinating book I read last year was entitled Boone Island. It's the true story of the Nottingham, which was a ship that ran aground about 12 miles off from Portsmouth, New Hampshire back in 1710 in the middle of the winter. Fascinating, 
fascinating account of these men that lived there for a month and were finally rescued after one made it to shore on a very crude raft. But Paul knew about shipwrecks, and so he takes this analogy and he applies it to the case of two men, and he calls them by name. And the assumption is all of the people there that Timothy ministered to would know who they were. Paul's not releasing any secrets. They knew who Hymenaeus was, and they knew who Alexander was. Now, Hymenaeus is mentioned in another place in Scripture that he was teaching falsely that the resurrection had already taken place. Alexander was a common name. We find the name Alexander in other places in the New Testament, but we're not sure who this guy was. Regardless, they had both let go. They had both let go of the faith and of a good conscience. And now Paul says they are spiritually shipwrecked. In fact, he uses by rejecting us. They have rejected these. The term, I looked that up, and to reject a good conscience is to push it away. It means to push that away. Don't make me feel guilty. Don't give me pangs of conscience. That's what they had done. They had resisted it and turned their backs on it. But I love this because he doesn't end with this last verse where it says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What in the world does that mean? I'm out of time. I've got to wrap it. No, uh, we find a similar phrase to this in one other place in the New Testament. If you don't study the Bible, hopefully you will study the Bible, and the best one of the basic tools of Bible studies, you compare Scripture with Scripture. So if you get to a passage or a phrase that's obscure, you find it used elsewhere and see if that sheds any light on it. And so this phrase of handing someone over to Satan, we find also in Corinthians, where there was a man in the church. And this man was committing some kind of incest with his stepmother. It doesn't give us the details, but apparently this was well known within the church. It was well known publicly, and people weren't doing anything about it, and he was basically flaunting his lifestyle. And Paul gives instructions of how to deal with him. And because he was not repentant, he said, put him out of the church. That's the term for excommunication, the most severe form of church discipline, excommunication. Now, excommunication does not mean you have no communication with the person. That's shunning. That's something different. Excommunication means to put out of the communion, to put out of the fellowship of the church, to be put out from the sacraments, the communion service. That's what excommunication is. And so Paul said to the Corinthians, put the man out. He's, he's having a bad influence and he's not repentant. He was hardened. He was in his lifestyle and he wasn't even ashamed of it. And Paul says, separate. Interesting, in 2 Corinthians, he comes back and the guy's apparently repented. And Paul says, receive him back. <laughs> He's repented. Let him back in. Restoration. Here, it's the language of excommunication. Now, what's this about handing over to Satan? The church, first service, we had an infant baptism, and we stressed the community, the household of faith. The church is the household of faith. It's the community of faith. It's the expression of the kingdom of God on earth. To be in the church is to be in the kingdom of God. 
Now, that doesn't mean every member of a church is a believer. To be put out of the church and to say, look, you're not one of us. By your behavior that you're not repenting of, you are not one of us. So you should go out. You're not welcome to come here and participate because look how you're living and what you're saying and what you're teaching. This is no longer, you're not, you're not part of this. So to be put out is to be put out of the church, to be put in the kingdom of Satan. Does that make sense? That you've been removed, so to speak, from the umbrella of the church, and now you've been put out, and now you're there. And it, what I want you to notice, though, is he ends on a hopeful note. I have handed over to Satan. That's what he means. He's not condemning them to hell. He means that they're out of the church. We have no more influence on these guys. That they may be taught not to blaspheme. And that's a word of hope. To blaspheme means to speak evil of God. And so Paul is hoping that this step, this severe step of excommunication that's already taken place, by the way it's written, I've handed over, it's already taken place. Uh, it has, it's, it's intended to be remedial. It's intended to bring the person back. It's, it's hope that once he's away from the community of faith, or they are away from the community of faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they will realize what Proverbs says, that the way of transgressors is hard. And he's hoping that they will be taught not to blaspheme, be taught not to speak evil of a God. And so the hope is that they'll come back. That's always the intent of where there's something as severe as official church discipline like that. It's not a, it's not a final blow. It's a, like a severe thing, but it's with hope that the person will return and be restored. I want to close with with a verse, and then I want to tell you a story. It's a verse I don't remember knowing before this week as I was studying for this sermon. Second Chronicles 16.9, it says this. Second Chronicles, Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strong support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strong support those whose heart is completely his. What God wants you and me to do is give him our hearts completely. Give it to him wholly. And don't hold back. Don't hold back that secret sin or certain possessions or bank accounts or plans or give him your mind, give him your soul, give him your, give him your heart. David Flood, I've mentioned him to you several years ago. David Flood was a man from Sweden. You can read about him in Ruth Tucker's book, Stories of Faith. David Flood committed his life to Christ as a, as a young man, and he married a young woman named Sevilla that he knew in Sweden, and she shared that commitment to Christ like David had. They not only loved the Lord, they both as a couple felt called to serve as missions cross-culturally. And they wanted to go to Africa, which they did. They left Sweden and they went to an unreached portion of Africa in 1921. And they went to a people who had never been exposed, never heard the gospel. They'd never been exposed to the teaching of the scriptures. And much more so than they expected, the work was hard, the conditions were devastating, and the results, well, there were no results. The people not only were hostile, they were unresponsive. Their lives were constantly in danger. 
They had two children while they were living there. And shortly after the second child was born, this young wife, Sevilla, died. And David, who had already been consumed by doubts and discouragements from lack of results, was devastated. He felt, all I have to show for all this effort is one convert, one young boy had professed faith in Christ. And David Flood felt he had sacrificed his life and his wife and the welfare of his two children almost for nothing. So he concluded he had been a fool, and David Flood became a spiritual shipwreck. He had, under a cloud of guilt and despair and discouragement and defeat, he said, I am leaving Africa, and I am going back home to Sweden. He took the oldest of the two children with him. This was a young boy by now. And he had to leave his infant daughter in the care of another missionary couple there in Africa because the infant was ill. And later that missionary couple died, and so the care of this young girl by now was entrusted to another missionary couple who brought her here to America, and they raised her in America. In the meantime, David had gone back to Sweden. He had completely turned his back on the Christian faith. He married again, but that second marriage dissolved. He met another woman. He began living with her unmarried. Said he thought little of his daughter. He had not seen her since she was an infant. However, the daughter, who by now was much older, named Aggie, thought often of him. And she began to do some research and learned about the work that her mother and father had done. And she wanted to talk to him about it. And she married, she was married by now, and she and her husband, living here in America, began to do research, and she found that her father was in Sweden, and so she planned a trip to Sweden, and she found her father, who at that time was 73 years of age, bedridden, living in a sparse apartment, and he was an alcoholic. And she goes to him, and she tells him that she loved him, that God loved him, and then she told him about that one young convert from Africa, she told him that she had found out that that young boy who had professed faith in Christ grew up to be a gifted teacher and minister of the gospel, that he eventually led multitudes of people in that part of the country to Christ, and he helped establish churches in that section of Africa. And upon hearing what God had done, this spiritual shipwreck, David Flood, repented. And he threw himself on the mercy of God, and he asked God to forgive his rebellion and the wasted years, 40-plus wasted years, and God did so. David did not know at that time, but he only had six months to live. And though his time was brief, they were very, very productive months. He was able to go around to many people that he had sinned against, and he restored broken relationships. So after nearly 40 years of being shipwrecked spiritually, David Flood got up. And he finished the race, and he finished strong. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strong support those whose heart is completely his. Give your heart to him, and give it to him fully. As we pray together. Our Father and our God, your patience overwhelms us.
And we pray that our hearts would belong to you, that our trust would be in Jesus as our Redeemer, that we would hold on to the essentials of the faith and not water down your truth or ignore your truth, and that you'd help us to serve you with a good conscience. Father, today bring repentance into our lives where there's sins that we are committed, committing. Maybe no one else knows about them, but we know about them, and they violate our conscience, and they are hindering our walks with you. We pray that you'd give us repentance to turn from those this very day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.